Oh, mercy, mercy, mercy. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Brother Tyler, for your sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit this week and the songs that we've sung, the theme that uh, we have pursued uh, throughout the morning. It's a blessing. Appreciate it. Just throw this out there. I've had the opportunity to preach in a lot of places around the country, and um, sometimes it just seems like the music guy just kind of goes, yeah, this will work, yeah, this will work, and it's like, wow, this is crazy. Um, but I appreciate the effort, and the prayer, and the thought um, that is put into every song service here. Um, it, is, it is a tremendous, tremendous blessing. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, from the frying pan into the fire? You heard that? Someone might say, you know, if he does that, he's just going to be jumping from the frying pan right into the fire. And what they're saying is if whoever uh, takes that step or makes that decision, I mean, they're already in a bad situation. And they're just going to go from a bad situation to a much worse situation. Personal story from the days of my youth. We had a, an art slash English teacher. I was growing up in Tyrone. She was a single lady. Her name was Miss Yoho. Yep. Get a group of teenagers and a teacher with a last name Yoho and everything that just came into your mind. Yep, that was us. We we had a lot of fun with the last name Yoho. Miss Yoho. She liked to use the mark system in class. You know, you get a mark for this and a mark for that. And if you get so many marks, you get this. And it wasn't good. And you get so many marks. I mean, the, the punishment, the discipline just kept, kept elevating. You know what I'm talking about? And you write your name down and start putting these marks on there. I know this surprises some of you, but I haven't always worn this halo. As a matter of fact, there were times in school when the teachers did not see a halo. They saw horns. I was that guy. And one day, we're in English class. Some guy pipes up and says, hey, Prater, I bet you can't get 10 marks. Game on. And I won. That's 10 of those babies, which equaled five swats. So, you know, sometimes you do things without thinking. And so school's over, and I show up to Miss Yoho's English classroom, and I'm there to take my punishment. I use air quotes because... And getting, uh, getting a whipping from Miss Yoho wasn't really that painful.
painful. But let's admit it, anytime someone whacks you on the behind with a piece of wood, now we're dating ourselves, aren't we? They used to do that in school, kids, and it was a lot better back then, by the way. Some of these kids are going, because some of their teachers are here. But back in the day, how many remember, they used to whack you with a stick. Absolutely. Well, I was there to get whacked by this stick five times. And uh, so there I am. I can't do it too much. He's Pants are a little stiff, but. <laughs> so there I was, and I was bent over the edge of Miss Yoho's desk, and I'm looking across the hall to Mr. Reed's math classroom, and some buddies of mine are in there, and they're laughing. And I'm laughing, trying to, you know, pretend like it doesn't hurt at all. And so she starts whacking me. And about that time, Mr. Beer. Yeah, Mr. Curtis Beer just happens to be walking down the hall, and he looks over, and he sees me smiling. And so he stops, and he walks into the room, and he says, Miss Yoho, I think Billy's enjoying this a little bit too much. You mind if I help you? Much of my chagrin, she didn't mind. <laughs> How many is he supposed to get? She said, five. Now, he should have asked, well, how many has he gotten? But he didn't. So he just goes right back to the beginning. And he starts wailing on me. He lit me up. I swear to this day, if I sit just right, I can still feel it. He wore the fire out of me. And so I went from a bad situation to setting my seat on fire. And so it, I jumped out of the frying pan, if you will, and into the fire. It wasn't a good choice. And I say all of that to get us to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. Because what we're going to find out is that unlike my situation where I was intentional in moving from a bad situation to a worse situation, Joshua and the children of Israel, this isn't on, this isn't their choice, this isn't intentional, but they are about to go from the frying pan into the fire. Now, last week, we talked about how to recover from a, a bad choice. Because a couple of chapters previous, Joshua, the men of Israel, had made a bad choice. They had made a choice to enter into a league or an agreement or a covenant with People that they should have driven out of the land of Canaan. And after making a league with them, these people from Gibeon came to Joshua and the men of Israel. 
And they said, listen, you need to come help us right now because we made this league with you and now all of these other nations uh, to the south are angry at us and they're worried about us joining up with you and so they've come to destroy us. We need you to come now. And so Joshua and his men got up and it was the right thing to do to go defend the Gibeonites because whenever you make a bad choice, the right thing is to always take responsibility for it. That's the first step. If you want to recover from making a bad choice, then you need to, you need to take responsibility for that. You, you need to not pass the buck. You need to own it. And so Joshua and his men, they make this very difficult journey across some very rugged terrain at night. And to make matters worse, they're having to make an ascent of some 4,000 feet. And when they got there, the battle was already raging, and so they jumped right into the battle, and they, they fought all throughout the day and well into the next night. But they didn't have to fight in the dark. You remember Joshua prayed. And, and he, asked, he, he, he said, son, stand still. And God slowed the rotation of the earth just enough to extend the daylight just long enough for Joshua and his men to accomplish the mission that they had gone on. And let me just ask, say this again this morning. Let me ask you again this morning. If God can, can do something that powerful, if he can slow the earth's rotation just enough to give Joshua's men just enough time to do what they needed to do, then pray tell me this morning, what could you possibly bring to God and ask him to do that would be too big? That would be too much. No, this is, just, this is just too impossible. This is too messy. Uh, this, is, this is just too beyond anything that anybody could do. Listen to me this morning. If God can do that, then he can do whatever it is that you bring to him. The reason that we spend so much time talking about the, the arduous journey and the difficult terrain and, and the ascent was to prove the point that sometimes the road to recovering from a bad choice, it can be a long road. And it can be a hard road. And it can be difficult. But listen to me this morning. The journey is well worth it. Now, look at chapter 10. It ends this way. And all of the, the kings and their land did Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and, and all Israel with him, under the camp, to Gilgal. But as we're about to see, the thrill of victory was short-lived. Look in verse 1, chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things. What things? 
The things that I just talked about, the thing the, the, about Joshua and Israel going to fight for Gibeon and, and destroying all of the, the enemies of, of Gibeon and of Israel. When Jabin heard about that, then he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and to the plain south of Chinneroth, and in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite, and to the Hittite, and to the Perizzite, and to the Jebusite, and in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they went out, they and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots, very many. And when all the kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Let me stop there and, and just point out something that was very interesting to me. And that is how the, the writer here makes so much effort to specify the various kings and to identify their exact locations and to indicate the, the different ethnic groups preparing to assault Israel. Not only that, but, but also the massing of, of their numbers and their armaments. It's interesting to me because he could have saved a lot of, of uh, parchment. He could have saved a lot of ink, could have saved us a little bit of time this morning by having, not having to pronounce all those names by, by just saying, hey, Jabin, he, he was fearful of, of Joshua, fearful of, of the men of Gibeon, and so he got all his buddies together, and now they're going to go fight against, <laughs> against Joshua. But he didn't do that. And I think the point is to help us understand this morning and appreciate how overwhelming the enemy was that Joshua and the Israelites we're about to face. More often than we know, the Bible wants to impress our imaginations rather than merely inform our brains. And so he puts all of this detail in there so we'll understand the enormity of the situation. This is huge. But there's another side to this as well. Not only does all of this detail impress upon us the massive resources available to the enemies of God, but it also makes the power of God shine more brightly in delivering His people from their hands. So yeah, on the one hand, it shows us how overwhelming the enemy is, but on the other hand, we ought to take heart because it shows how powerful our God is. So here we have Joshua and his men. They're fresh off a long, hard-fought battle at Gibeon. One in which they, they expended a, a lot of energy. They were, were no doubt greatly fatigued. And then they get word that they're about to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a larger, far better equipped army than their own. The Jewish historian Josephus speculated that there were 300,000, as many as 300,000 men on foot another 10,000 on horses, and another 20,000 in chariots. 
That's a lot of force to deal with. Now here's where I'm going with this. As I've explained on a couple of occasions already, when you and I as believers declare that we are no longer satisfied with the status quo in our spiritual life, and we make the determination that we're going to go forward for God, and we make the decision, a serious decision, that we're going to start gaining ground, and we're going to start going, uh, growing in the Lord, and we're going to gain ground in our walk with Him. Listen to me this morning. We will not accomplish any of that without a fight. Without a fight. See, fight with who? Fight with our enemy. And as believers, we have an enemy that is large and well-organized and very powerful. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let me stop there and say this. Here's where you and I get into a lot of trouble. It's when we think our spouse is our enemy. Or our parents are our enemy. Or our teachers are our enemy. Or our coach is our enemy. Or our boss is our enemy. Or our co-workers are our enemies. Listen to me this morning. They are not the enemy. Now they may be the pawns that the enemy is using to move against us and create havoc in our life. But we have to understand this morning, when you and I go to battle with the people that we can see, the people that we live with, the people that are around us, when you and I go to battle with them, it's really to no avail because they're not the enemy. Here's the enemy. Principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness, in high places. So not only are they large and well organized and very powerful, but they're invisible. So the battle that I'm talking about this morning is different than the battle that Joshua was about to get involved in because our enemy is invisible. Some time ago, I preached a series of messages on Sunday morning on spiritual warfare. And here's how we define spiritual warfare for that study. It is the conflict that is being waged in the invisible spiritual realm. Now watch this. That is being manifest in the visible physical realm. So what we see happening in our world and in our culture and in our own lives personally is the result of something that's taking place out there between the enemies of darkness and God himself. And it's spiritual battle. We can't see the cause of this conflict, but we can and do see the effects of it every day in our own personal lives, and in the lives of those around us. For example, we see it in our own lives as we constantly wrestle with things like temptation and wrong attitudes and besetting sins. Am I the only one here that wrestles with those things? No, they come at us all the time. We see it at home. 
as men and, and women struggle to carry out their God-given roles as husbands and wives and parents. And we see it played out in our children as they disobey and they rebel. This warfare is experienced in churches as well. The devil wants to divide the church by manipulating and exploiting personality, weaknesses, and preferences. And perhaps the most visible manifestation of this spiritual battle, these manifestations are seen as we engage our culture on a daily basis. I mean, the blatant sin and the outright rebellion against God and against His Word. Listen to me this morning. Those things are the result of Satan having his way in the hearts and lives of millions upon millions of people every single day. We have an enemy, and it's large. And it's well-organized, it's well-equipped, and it's invisible. But I'm telling you this morning, it's real. As real as the enemy that Joshua was about to face. And it's easy for us sometimes to feel overwhelmed in our battles as Joshua had to have felt in his. I mean, horses and chariots were the sophisticated weaponry of that day. And there was a combined 30,000 of them. Now to put that in perspective, it would be like today's modern foot soldier going to battle against an enemy that is bringing nothing but tanks. That's what Joshua was facing. And sometimes, it, does it not feel that way in our own lives? That we're outmanned, we're outgunned, they've got better equipment. And to make matters worse, I can't even see them. And they just keep coming. And we, we feel overwhelmed at times. Not only by the force of our enemy, but by his relentlessness. But listen to me today. We don't fight alone. <laughs> Glad that was encouraging, wasn't it? Are you with me today? We don't fight alone. We have help. Let's read the rest of our text, and then I'm going to try my best and make some, some practical application of it in our lives in 2019. Let's, let's continue on. Verse 6. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Thou shalt hawk, is how you pronounce that, thou shalt hawk their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merom suddenly. And they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon and unto that other place and unto the valley of Mizpah, eastward. 
And they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He hopped their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. And Joshua at the time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before times was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe. And he, he burnt Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all the kings of them did Joshua take and smote them with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But as for those cities that stood still in their strength, and they were still, they were still existing, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only, that Joshua did burn. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto them, but every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, neither, neither left they any to breathe. I, I didn't intend to say this this morning, but I'm going to. Sometimes people wonder, well, Bridget, what kind of book is that? I mean, what, 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 what kind of God is that that just slices and dices people and just destroys people and killing people all the time? And I heard a good explanation of that this week in a sermon that I was listening to. The man said, suppose you go to the doctor and he tells you you've got cancer. What are you going to do with that? You're going to eradicate it. You're going to get rid of it. You want him to be as extreme as he's got to be to get rid of that. Listen, these were the enemies of God. They were the enemies of God's people. They were a cancer on the face of the land of Canaan. And God's removing them. And God's getting them out of the way. They're a cancer. Look at verse 15. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. Watch this. And he left nothing undone. Nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, <clears throat> the hills and all the south country and all the land of Goshen and the valley and the plain and the mountain of Israel and the valley of the same. Even from, uh, from Mount Halak that goeth up to Seir, even to Baal Gad in the valley of, of Lebanon under Mount Hermon, and all their kings he took and smote them and slew them. Joshua made war a long time, verse 18, with all those kings. Now stay with me. Go back to verse 6. God told Joshua to hawk the horses and to burn the chariots with fire. <laughs> and you look at that and say, what in the world is up with that? I mean, that's like, uh, that's like today, you kill the enemy and you leave all their weapons and all their ammunition, all their explosive and all the things that you could take and use for yourself, and you just leave it laying there. I mean, who does that? And so here you have 
this command of the Lord. Now, here's what I understand about hawking, and you, you horse people in here this morning can, uh, can correct me when I'm, when I'm through preaching this morning. Please don't do it now, but feel free to after the, after the service. But I'm not a horse guy, okay? I mean, I hurt myself on the one at Walmart one time, so I, I'm not a horse guy. But, but I've got resources, and, and the resources that I read and studied, there are a couple explanations for this, this hawking process. Some, some said that it was uh, cutting either the, the large tendon at the back of the knee on the hind legs of the horse, or it involved cutting the Achilles tendon, depending on, on which one you read. But either way, they all agreed that, that what it had to do, it had to do with rendering a horse ineffective for military use. Now again, you look at that, and, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least to me. And you would think that Israel would have taken those horses and, and put them to work for them as a way of bolstering their own military strength. I mean, the same with the chariots. Why not use them for their own good against future enemies? You tracking with me? Why, why destroy them? And there were, were a, a number of suggestions as to why, and many of them were plausible. But here's the main reason, I believe. It was because God did not want their reliance and confidence to be in horses and chariots. He wanted them to trust Him. They wanted him, them to rely on him. They want, he wanted them to be confident in him. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 20 and verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In another place he wrote, my help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. And it's because our help comes from the Lord, which is going to be our focus for the remaining time, because our help is from the Lord, and I submit to you there are three things that we need to do in the battles that we fight on a daily basis. They're the same three things that Joshua did. Because our help comes from the Lord, we should trust Him. I think we need a constant reminder in our daily battles with our powerful and invisible spiritual enemies that our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Listen, as believers, what does the Bible tell us? It says we're to walk by faith, not by sight. John reminds us that it's faith that overcomes. And if you're new to, to fellowship, here's how, I, here's how we like to, to define faith. It's believing the Word of God and acting on it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. Believing the Word of God, acting on it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. 
So as we look at our text, what was God's word to Joshua? Well, according to verse 6, he was to be courageous and he was to go to battle against the enemy because God was going to deliver them into his hands. Did Joshua act on it? Oh, indeed, he did. Verse 7, so Joshua came, and all the people were with him, against them by the waters of, of Merom suddenly, and they fell on them. God said, Joshua, go. Joshua believed the word of God. He acted on it, and he went. Well, did God do what he said he would do? Yeah, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. Joshua acted in faith. Would you agree with me this morning that it is so easy to fall into the trap of not believing God's word and not acting on it, even though he promises a good result. And instead, we often give in to our feelings of fear and doubt. And so we opt to rely on things like our own intellect and our own ingenuity and our own giftedness. Far too often, we think, well, I can do this. Oh, I've got that. Nah, I can overcome this on my own. I'm good. And so we don't pray, and we don't seek God. We just plow ahead, trusting in our horses and chariots, if you will. And the end result is seldom what we hoped it would be. Listen, our help comes from the Lord. So our trust needs to be in Him and in His Word. I'm telling you, there is something for everything in this book. It doesn't matter what you're facing, what you're going through. It doesn't matter what comes your way. I'm telling you this morning, there is something in this book for everything. And we ought to trust it. This is where our faith needs to be. It needs to be in this book and the author of this book. Now let me just say this real quick. What is true of individuals can be true of churches as well. When it comes to trusting in other things and forgetting that our help as a ministry comes from the Lord. Churches sometimes, listen, churches sometimes can fall prey to a type of thinking that leads them to believe that their success, if, if I can use that word, depends on things like the charisma of the preacher, the creativity of the worship leader, the quality of their website, the, the, their use of the, the newest forms of technology, the latest trend in stage design, their, their location, their facilities, their musicians, their branding technique. And please don't get me wrong. Listen, I believe that we ought to use everything that God gives us. I think we ought to take advantage of every resource that God brings our way. And I believe that we ought to do it in an excellent way. 
We're not going to apologize for striving for excellence at Fellowship Baptist Church. Never will apologize for that because we serve an excellent God. And He deserves our best. But at the end of the day, those things that I just mentioned, websites and facilities and locations and music and, and how cool the preacher is, listen, all of those things, they're just tools. You got that right. Our preacher's a real tool. I'll just say it because some of you are thinking that. Listen, buildings and music and ministries are not where our trust should be. Those things do not, listen, listen, listen. Those things do not change lives. This book changes lives. And may that forever, forever be the philosophy of the ministry of this church. That this book, not programs, not people, this book changes lives. And we will forever preach this book. And the preaching of this book will forever be preeminent in this ministry. Our help comes from the Lord, so trust Him. Our help comes from the Lord, so obey Him. Verse 15 says that Joshua didn't do, he, he, he didn't fail to do anything that he was supposed to do. And I address this in the last message by saying when it comes to recovering from our bad choices, we are responsible for doing what we can do. And then God is responsible for doing the things that we can't do. For example, if we say something and we hurt somebody, then here's what we can do. We can apologize and we can do our best to make amends. But we've got to remember that there are some things that we can't do. We can't change a heart. We can't make anybody forgive us. That's the work of God. And if we make a bad financial choice and we get ourselves and our family in a bad situation financially, there are some things we can do. And after we've done everything I, we can do, then, then you'll be surprised at the things that, that you can't do that God will do. Joshua did what he could. He obeyed. He didn't leave one thing undone. Now, some may wonder at this point, or maybe at some other time in their Bible, well, preacher, why, if, if, God has, if God has predetermined an outcome, then why do we have to do anything? If God's already determined something, then, then why do we have anything to do with it? And the simple answer is this, God's sovereignty does not render man's effort irrelevant. I like what Ralph Davis said about this. He writes, divine sovereignty creates confidence, which calls forth our effort even to the point of reckless abandon. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles us, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles us, but an elixir that invigorates us. In other words, because, God, yeah, God told him, Joshua, listen to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Because I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deliver these people into your hands. Then why at that point didn't Joshua just say, cool, I'm going to get some sleep. 
Because God's sovereignty does not override our responsibility. You know what it did when when God told Joshua, hey, listen, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to take care of that, and I'm going to destroy those enemies? You know what that did? That, That encouraged Joshua. It gave him confidence. He said, let's go, fellas. We can do this because God's with us. Granted, our help comes from the Lord. But it doesn't come while we're just sitting around and doing nothing. It comes with the faithful and obedient discharge of our duties. Listen, God promises to supply our needs. But that's only in the context of giving. Philippians 4.19 God promises to show us great and mighty things, but that's only in response to our praying. God promises to save the lost. But that'll only happen when you and I go and share the gospel with them. God promises us victory in our spiritual battles, but that's only in response to us putting up a fight. There wasn't one area in his life where Joshua failed to do what he could do. He obeyed God, and he trusted God, and then, listen to this, he didn't quit. And that's the last thing this morning. Don't quit. I know it's a battle. I know it's a fight. But don't quit. Look at verse 18. Joshua made war. One of those next three words. A long time. Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. Now, here's what you got to keep in mind. Sometimes we can, we can look at this. We can, oh, man, it only took one. It only took, it only took one page, less than one page for Joshua to destroy all those guys. Eh. What we have to remember is what we're getting here is a condensed version of what happened. And I'll not go into all the details of how you can calculate this and come to this conclusion. You can do it on your own. But we ought to read a long time there. Maybe you ought to write this in your Bible. Seven years. Seven years. It has to do with Caleb and, and, and a number of, uh, of things. But you can compare Scripture with Scripture. And here's what you'll come to. It took seven years for Joshua to get rid of all of those enemies. It's not like he just woke up, went out the next day, and boom, they're gone. Seven years. Are you listening to me this morning? Seven years. Now, God could have given Joshua and the Israelites the land of Canaan all at once. But he chose not to. As a matter of fact, if you'll go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 7, it'll be up there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 22, when God was preparing them to go into the, into the land of Canaan. Here's what God said. He said, I, I, I will put out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once. Now going back to our thought about spiritual warfare. Listen to me this morning. It's real. And it goes on every day in the lives of those among us who are really trying to do something for God. Sarah Preacher, man, I, I guess I just don't see it. Well, as I've said before, that's not really a good thing. We ought to be seeing it. No, are you listening? We ought to be in the war. We ought to be in the battle. 
We ought to be running up against opposition and obstacles in our life because if we're not, that means we're no threat to the devil. And he's not going to worry about us. He's got other people to worry about that are trying to do something for God. I'm telling you, for those that are trying to do something for the Lord, for those that are trying to go forward, it's a battle. And it will continue. This is the bad news. This is, this is, this is the, 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 the not-so-good part of this. It will continue as long as we're in these mortal bodies. So just as Joshua's conquest called for endurance, listen, church, so does ours. This daily encounter with the forces of evil calls for a daily renewal of spiritual strength. Yesterday's strength is not sufficient for today's fight. That's why Paul wrote in the book of 2 Corinthians, for which cause we faint not, but this but though our outward man perish, isn't it crazy? <laughs> How much money people spend on lotions and creams and, 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 and nicks and cuts and push-ups and pull-downs and whatever else they do, trying to preserve? Listen, you're wasting your money. Give it to missions. Because it don't matter how much you nip and tuck. It's all going back to dirt, sister. Sorry. It's all going back to dirt. Yeah, but it's going to be good looking dirt. Yeah. And it's going to be expensive dirt. And here we are, we're trying to, we can't do anything to these outside bodies. But listen, the inward man, the inward man where the battle is going on, the inward man that fights for us can be renewed day by day. Not week by week, not month by month, not year by year. Say it day by day. Every day, every day, we're going to need renewed strength to win the battle for things like our quiet time with God. Am I the only person here this morning that, that struggles with my quiet time because there always seems to be something vying for that time? Listen, we've got to do battle every day. To win the fight for our quiet time with God. To, to, to win the fight for a pure mind and an other-focused way of living. And God-like dispositions and a healthy marriage and a happy home and a godly family and a disciplined life and a good work ethic and good morals and honesty and faithful church attendance and commitment in ministry and the right influences in our life. Listen, those are things that the devil fights against every day. And so we've got to get on our face before God every day and say, God, I don't have the strength for this. So God, renew my strength. But don't quit. You've got it available to you. 
every day. We're going to need renewed strength to win over things like lust and selfishness and hate and greed and anger and complaining and envy, somebody help me, and guilt and fear and worry and discouragement and grief and laziness and self-dependency because those are the things that our enemy will throw at us every single day. Pastor, and how long am I going to have to be in this battle? There's only two ways out of it. Only two ways. Either Jesus comes and he takes you up. (laughs) Or he takes you out by way of death. That's it the only way out of this battle so don't quit don't quit every head bowed